Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl for August 24th, 2018. I can't believe we are already almost closing out summer for this year. I'm really thrilled to have um, a beautiful woman and spirit with us today, uh, Ruth King, author of the recently published Mindful of Race, which there, you can see it a little bit better. Um, it's really a wonderful book and really uh, invites us into this opportunity to explore our inner lives and kind of get curious about what's going on with us and then also apply that same kind of curiosity to the world in which we interact with and that we relate to. Ruth King is an international teacher in the insight meditation tradition, an emotional wisdom author and life coach. She is on the Teachers Council at Inside Meditation Community of Washington and Spirit Rock Meditation Center and is the founder of Mindful Members Insight Meditation Community in Charlotte, North Carolina. Currently recognized as a trainer of trainers and a consultant to consultants, King offers teachings uh, and that she teaches the mindful of race training and facilitation programs, which blend mindfulness principles and meditation with an exploration of our racial conditioning. That's really the heart of it. It's impact and our potential. So there's a hopeful message here, both dynamic and compassionate. She is indeed. King speaks to the heart of her audiences with authenticity and joy. Welcome, Ruth King. Thank you. It's so great to be here. As you were reading that bio, I was saying, oh, I want to meet her. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, thank you. This is great. This is I, great. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, and I want to meet her too. And I think everybody, everybody else wants to meet you because indeed, you know, there's something about embodied presence um, that I've often said, uh, you just feel it from the inside out when you're in a room with someone who has a joyful capacity in their heart, uh, regardless of what's going on, that, um, that that can be tapped into, not negating some of the stuff that happens in the world that we you know, may find challenging and is unjust, but that there's a joy in there that uh, you certainly bring to the table and light up the room. So thank you so much. Thank you. So your book, Mindful of Race, is subtitled Transforming Racism from the Inside Out. And before we started recording, we talked about how this is hard work, but it's also heart work. Exactly. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, commonly, one of the ways I talk about this is that racism is a heart disease and it's curable. So uh, I think uh, I'm talking about the global heart in a way and how we're really connected. And when, when we've had this chronic uh, pattern of racial distress and injury and harm at the social level and also at the individual level, uh, you know, if we, if we could just uh, bring our mindfulness practice and drop this distress right into the heart of it. I think we're right in the zone of looking at how we can um, create a certain kind of composting of our distress into soil that serves um, our community. Beautiful. I love that image of composting and, and you know, sort of tilling the soil because it's really yeah. that regeneration. We're always planting seeds, we're composting, we're tilling, we're planting, we're weeding growing, enjoying the fruits. That's right. That's right. That's the hope, right? And, uh, and all of those ways, those ways 
the doing part is that we are connecting in the doing, that there is a felt sense, a connection, um, that we're not removed from it. It's not conceptual. We can't be conceptual. We can't be in a conceptual frame in our garden, touching the dirt. It's something we can feel and know and, um, and appreciate uh, while we're doing it. Uh, so I think this is very, this is uh, this kind of exploration of being mindful of race from the inside out uh, puts us into a place of deep intimacy with our lives and our sense of belonging. And that's my prayer, if you will, in uh, bringing mindfulness and racial, our racial conditioning together uh, in the soil. Beautiful. And, you know, we'll go through the parts of the book. You have part one, um, starting with understanding habits of harm and the diagnosis there. And we can, we can talk about that. But mentioning this word conditioning, it's really sort of at the root of, you know, the Buddhist teachings, which is, you know, wrong view or, or, or delusion, ignorance, sort of not knowing what you don't know, that yeah. blind spot, that myopia. And a lot of us live in worlds where perhaps we either don't see race at all, or we only see it, or, you know, that there's a way to somehow recognize and start to decalcify, I like to say, not only our habits around um, our own personal and individual conditioning, but also look at the systemic uh, sort of larger structures in which we um, also operate, and as you say, are uh, a belonging part of. That's right. And one of the ways I like to talk about that is through the Buddhist teachings of the two truth doctrine, which is about ultimate reality and relative reality. And it really relates to race very beautifully here because in ultimate reality, we're nobodies, right? But in relative reality, we're in these bodies, in these spacesuits, in these ethnicities, in these races, in these ages and models and we're bumping into each other and we're socialized to be in relationship with that complexity. So we're in these different camps and there are what they are within relative reality. But then there's a value that's placed on the groupings of identities and there's dominant groups and subordinated groups. And that dynamic is what makes uh, relative reality what it is, all these different camps we're in. But we need these bodies, we need the relative reality, we need these experiences uh, of being in relationship to each other to wake up to ultimate reality. We don't get to just bypass our lives under the umbrella of a beautiful spiritual life and not feel our lives. We actually need to feel our lives in order to recognize uh, and get glimpses of ultimate reality, which is that place where we're beyond race. We are race, but we're, we're beyond race. We're not fixated in it, or it's not necessarily um, an experience where it has to be dominant or subordinated. There's a sense of synergy in our relative reality. Uh, there's a lot to say about this, so I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing in a way, but there's this, this import, important piece of understanding our relational kinship and relative reality that supports our enlightenment or liberation, increasing moments of liberation where we can know a sense of the ultimate reality. 
Well, that's so beautiful. And it also reminds me of the Bodhisattva vow, which is, you know, to the liberation of all beings. None of us is free until we're all free, really, at the end of the day. And so my own personal liberation is part and parcel with collective liberation. And that's for all beings. That's right. And, and that's not because uh, every single individual has to be, you know, on the same page at the same time that those teachings are about us really understanding our interdependence, the, um, the, the idea of compassion as a weapon of mass healing and, you know, instead of the uh, alternative, which is a lot of harm. And, and that, um, uh, there, that non-harming has to be um, uh, non-conditional, that we have to bring that into a front of our view, uh, this value or this precept that we have of non-harming in our tradition especially. So that's how the Bodhisattva moves through the world um, with these vows through a recognition of ourselves. Uh, I see you. I see you. I see myself in you. Um, I understand this at a very uh, deep level, this idea of interdependence, non-harming, and compassion. So that's something that I think uh, helps us uh, know that when we're walking in the world, with that kind of uh, intention, practicing with that as a value, it offers a certain radiance in our aliveness. And it's that radiance that I think is giving off the light of the Bodhisattva that, that then permeates our environment. And um, so it's not just a one-on-one -on -one thing, your life and my life, but it's really how we're walking in the world, the radiance we bring. Uh, and that's why I like to speak of the book and the work that I do as transforming racism from the inside out because it can't be conceptual. It has to be a practice of deep care and belonging for not just our own well-being, but that of, the, of our social and global context. Beautiful. And, you know, when you're speaking, it reminds me of sort of some of my own journey or that of which, um, you know, I'm aware and a few other people that I know uh, a little bit about their, their journey. And sort of the, the, the first part of waking up seems to be, at least for me anyway, was like, wow, like, in a way, there's nothing wrong with me, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I'm heavily conditioned. And there's nothing wrong with me, kind of like the relative absolute, you know, the two truths doctrine that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I have programming. Everybody has programming, um, you know, big programming like societal, structural, religious, institutional, and then little programming like our family of origin or certain relationships that, you know, have, have mapped us out in a way. And then the mindfulness that we bring to our lives now can create that agency, that space, that awareness. We're bringing in that knowing quality into, we're aware of what it is that, you know, we've been programmed with. And That's right. Updating the software, so to speak, just you know, right. to, mm -hmm. to have it be a little bit more inclusive. But to your point about um, being this light, I'm just going to play devil's advocate. Um, some folks might say, but I don't see race. I'm colorblind. And then uh, Conda Mason had introduced me to the concept of um, cultural competency and how that's very different from colorblindness. And I was wondering if this is an appropriate point in the conversation to kind of explain what you might mean by that or how people might be able to begin to understand, even if their intention is to bring love or light or interdependence or connectivity mm -hmm. into the conversation or into their embodiment, 
um, that if colorblindness and not cultural competency is present predominantly, that um, there may be a missing link. Yeah, well, I think it's so important uh, for us because um, a lot of people uh, that don't see color are white people. I mean, let's, let's be clear about that. I very seldom see a person of color talking about being, you know, uh, unable to see color because that's our lived experience. But one of the ways I try to get at this very common question in, in, is that we are all good individuals. We all have uh, come through some conditioning through our family system, our guardianship, uh, from the place that we were raised and the people that surrounded us. We're all shaped by their beliefs and concepts and care. And, and this is, you know, we've all had traumas. We've all had ways we've figured out how to never be hurt again, you know, maneuver in that way. We all have our temperaments and personalities. This is all at the individual level. We're all good individuals. And we're also part of racial identity groups. Some of us are in multiple racial identity groups. And whether we like it or not, we are membered in those groups. Some of us know that and some of us don't. So many people of color, for example, can readily identify with being a part of a racial identity group because their survival dependent on them knowing each other. And what most people of color have in common is being oppressed by dominant culture. So what happens is uh, people of color can readily identify with being membered, and many white people don't identify with being a part of a white racial group. They see themselves as white individuals, and this is a big way that we miss each other. Uh, white people come to the table as good, well-meaning individuals. People come to the table as good, well-meaning individuals, and I'm a part of a racial identity group that's been kind of uh, impacted by dominant white culture. And, and, but when white people come to the table and they can't claim the dominant white culture that they are a member of, then we tend to miss each other in the conversation because one, white folks are talking about their individual experience, people of color are, talk, are talking about the accumulative impact of race. And that to me is a really, profoundly important way for us to understand how we miss each other and what gets triggered and where we get snagged in the conversation, you know? So that's one way that I try to understand it. Now, it would be different if our experiences, you know, if we were just operating at the individual level, that wouldn't be an issue. We look at the individual level and we're talking about biases. We look at the group identity level, then we're starting to talk about discrimination and racism because group identity then rolls into organizational leadership roles. But that's a, a different kind of conversation. So I think it's really important um, uh, for us to understand, understanding how we impact each other is to understand that we're often looking at the situation of race and racism from the lens of our individual and our collective experience as a racial identity group. Beautiful, and I think that um, that very concept of looking at things from the perspective of what your racial identity group is, as you said, sort of 
inherent if you are in a group that has been oppressed or marginalized, but may be missed and not even taken note of or really a sense of uh, awareness around that if you are uh, white. Yeah, I mean, I think we can go back to the comment earlier. I mean, I've had people often say to me, white people, when I look at you, I don't see color. You know, and um, I know what that means. I mean, it's a it's a ultimate reality statement. I see you, you know, I don't see color, you know, you're a good person. That's an individual comment. Um, but the but my need as a person of as a black woman in a racial identity group that is oppressed by white people, I don't want my identity to not be seen because that feel that then feels dangerous and and uh, you know, like it's something missing. And oftentimes what's missing is an understanding of collective group experience. And the reason it's missing is because white people at large haven't looked at collective, which is a part of being in a dominant group. I don't care if it's a racial dominance or a gender dominance or religious dominance. Characteristic of dominance is that you don't have to look at yourself. And so this is the disconnect. You know, when white people uh, this is a comment when people can say, uh, all lives matter. All lives matter is an individual view. It's an ultimate reality view. Black lives matter is looking at the relative reality of the dynamic in our social realm where there's dominance and subordination of different groups. And the call, if you will, for Black Lives Matter is, to call, is a call for a social equanimity that is lacking in the world. That's what movements are made of, right? So it's really important to understand collective dominance um, when we're in these conversations and your membership in those groups. Because if, if that's not seen, um, then there's, there's, a, there's a texture and, um, and the, it's like, like uh, having a, a white plate that's not really looking at the gravy that's on it or something. You know, we need to get the gravy's on the plate and it's gonna be messy, you know, so let's, let's, let's get the biscuit and work this issue. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We're going back to food. I love We're that. We're going back to food. <laughs> everything, everything goes back to food. The, uh, the, the primordial nourishment, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. um, with our, our gut being our first brains, if you will. And, uh, and really what you're bringing into the conversation is, is the heart mind, right? That, that originally this is not just mindfulness. It's not just the mind. It's the heart mind. Um, and uh, some things do, in fact, get lost in translation. But I want to get back to this piece that you said about um, oppression and, and, you know, sort of uh, subjugation, dominant group and marginalized group, uh, because I feel as though for perhaps a lot of the folks who might be listening, um, you know, there's a little bit of a potential trigger or, you know, Robin D'Angelo coined the phrase white fragility. And I know Reverend um, Angel Kiro Williams has um, spoken of white racial fragility and, um, you know, sort of clarifying that, that a little bit. And I guess back to this idea of, you know, but I don't see race or colorblindness, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here, that there's this piece I think that comes in of, okay, so if you wake up to that and you kind of recognize, wow, I'm part of this um, dominant group or, you know, this um, white identified or, or, you know, racially privileged group, even if my life isn't perfect and I have, you know, individual traumas and pains and, you know, other things that might be happening like that aren't 
pleasant for me, whether it's a child that's sick or, you know, a marriage that is having challenges or whatever, that, that doesn't negate the fact that in this context of, of race, that there's still this larger container in which I'm a part or membership of this group that I'm part that has privilege and that is dominant, that then sometimes folks kind of feel perhaps overwhelmed or step back or don't want to engage in the conversation or feel as though they don't know how to engage in the conversation because they themselves feel overwhelmed by perhaps the impact of what all of that might mean based on the history of this country, how it was founded and whatever else. Once these, you know, stones begin to be unturned, you know, all the little critters kind of move about. <laughs> That's right. And so how might you um, invite uh, using the mindfulness practice as the grounding practice, this, um, as you started the book, um, internal sense of, of, of looking within, transformation from the inside out, that is potentially a, a way to, um, help solidify or any other ways that people might be able to get fortified and courageous to continue to walk through this door toward this collective belonging as opposed to um, use it as a um, aversive, um, you know, stance. Got it. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think uh, a couple of things. Um, one is... Um, and this is especially for white people, I think, that are beginning to wake up to the terror of this. A lot of it due to our political climate right now um, in the United States. Um, a lot of white people I'm talking to and working with through the training are starting to see, oh my gosh, you know, I've, I, I'm really getting that, you know, that, that, that this, this is a, a, there's a racial dynamic here that could be looked at. And there's a sense of embarrassment that comes with that, shame, guilt, shutting down. Um, and, and what's happening is people are starting to recognize that they are interested in having this conversation and even a feeling of feeling like we got to have this conversation. A lot of passion is going on at this time for white people around really stepping in and owning it. And they're coming into a rushing river uh, that has existed, and they're just now stepping into the water of. In other words, people of color have been in this conversation and in this, this racing train or river for a number of time, a number of years, if not generations. And some white people are just starting to wake up that a river is even existing. So that adds to a level of overwhelm, I think, in trying to uh, get your arms around who am I as a white person and what can I do? Uh, can I swim? Um, should I exercise my privilege to just pass and not go there? But for those of us who are interested in uh, having this conversation and staying in the river, joining the river of this discussion, I think this, the practice of mindfulness plays a pivotal role because what it does is it supports us in being with the overwhelm and developing an intimate relationship with our tendency, our impulse, our, our habit, our habits around relating to this, the ways we go to sleep, the ways we invest and then back out. Mindfulness 
you know, is a way that we can really look at those impulses and see if we can understand a deeper understanding of our fear or our uh, overwhelm or anxiety that goes with it. But before we do that, we have to invest in or, or, or set an intention that we're going to take this ride and stay in the river. Because if you don't have that intention, it's so easy to just hop out and lay in the sun on the side. <laughs> but it's important that you, you say, I'm jumping into this and I'm, I'm going to the other shore with all of the people engaged in this conversation towards liberation. I'm, I'm invested here. I'm not going to take the exit route. I'm not going to come out. So when you invest, then there's two structures that I think can support you. And one is the mindfulness structure of being able to lean in to the uh, vagueness, the confusion, the overwhelm, the rage, uh, the shame. You can really comfort and bring compassion and some of our um, heart practices to those edges. We can really use our practice to understand how we hide, where we close, what it's like to be open. And we can cultivate and, and kind of rest in, in those moments where we are noticing that we can survive this, that we can face it with ease, that it's, that it's impersonal on some levels, that it's impermanent on many levels. It's not gonna kill us. We're gonna learn something from it. This is our lives. It's not pretty all the time, but we can bear witness to it. So that's one structure that's, that, that I think is so important and being able to sit with what's really here as we take a walk, to, you know, take each step, take a breath, and, and just be here with what's here now. And also know when we're adding levels of complexity to it and how we hide out and how we're trying to protect our heart and how we don't want to be membered. All those things we get to see up close and personally in our mindfulness practice. So that's one structure. And another structure is through the racial affinity groups where we get ourselves with like race people and begin to intimately kind of decolonize or deconstruct through a series of questions how we've been conditioned around this so that we can bring a bit of aeration to it. We want to look at how what we've been taught to believe that maybe is no longer true, how we might carry with us an unconscious loyalty to our, our lineage, our racial lineage, without even knowing it. So there are some questions that we can ask and talk out loud to each other so that we are carrying our own weight in this dynamic. One of the pains, I think, is that white people, um, you know, when I say white people, I'm just using that to simplify the language, uh, have not engaged themselves as, racial, as a racial identity group. What, what many have done, though, is they've joined other races and causes, and that's essential work. I mean, activism is really essential work. Um, and, and I'm not saying we, we not do that. But when white people haven't done the work of whiteness, people of color end up having to educate them on what they can learn about themselves. Uh, and, and, and so they're not carrying their... Uh, literacy weight, and it's something that they can do. There's so much information out there on whiteness. There's no reason for people not to go there and learn from it. Uh, but the racial affinity group 
is a structure that supports like races to come together and investigate how did we get here? And, and not so much what we do, but can we be with our conditioning and recognize our story and the larger story of our racial conditioning? So those two structures of a mindfulness practice and a racial affinity group, I think really supports us in kind of deconstructing our habitual uh, response to, to this stimulus of race and racism. Yeah, that's beautiful. And um, I really appreciate that because I think that for a lot of folks, um, you just mentioned, you know, the work of whiteness. Um, a lot of people don't know that there's work to be done out there in terms of the work of whiteness. And yes, there are a lot of resources out there. I've taken a lot of classes along mm -hmm. these lines myself, whether it's the whiteawake.org um, classes that are offered out of the DC Insight, um, not out of there, but the group sprung out of um, the Insight Meditation Center of DC or other classes like the one Patty Dye offers on racism, P-A-T-T-I-D-I-G-H uh, dot org, or the work that you offer um, as well, not only, um, you know, in Sangha, in meditation centers, but also for corporations and, you know, organizations across the board because of your work, um, you know, with, with, with structures and not just, uh, you know, looking at the, the mirror, the individual lens. Um, I, I have to say it was interesting because I always figured that I was a bit of an ally, right? Because I'm multi-ethnic and, you know, I'm sort of roughly 75% white European and 25% Haitian, African-American, you know, ancestry. And I read James Baldwin in school and I, you know, had this family that was, you know, very much, um, you know, committed to social justice and economic justice for all and all of that. And yet I was, for much of my life, looking at things only through this um, piece of, you know, not, not as a member of, as you say, you know, uh, this privileged community, you know, or if I was, I was privileged in certain ways, perhaps with education or whatnot, but I really wasn't interrogating my own whiteness. And so when I looked at these classes, I took them, I was like, wow, now I get it. Yes. <laughs> you know, like yes. I was like, now I understand. <laughs> and, you know, and it was great and also overwhelming. So my own personal experience was about a year ago and I started really, really diving into this work, um, it did kind of, you know, I did feel like I stepped into the river a little bit, but, you know, I found a branch and I hung on and doggy paddled and got a life vest and, you know, whatever it is that one does in these situations. And then, like you say, kind of unconsciously, I guess I made a commitment to it, you know, to invest and to keep on going and to say, okay, well, this is the work, you know, and to weave it in and not as a either or, but to say, this is part of my life now. This is like part of life and it's part of what I'm intentionally setting the compass of my heart to, to include and to interrogate and to, to look at in my life. So just for, you know, listeners who may be on this journey also of just sort of where do I begin? I just want to share that my own personal anecdote because it definitely, um, was a, a waking up in that way for me. Yes, yes. Um, but really, I'm grateful that it's a path that I've, you know, looked at more deeply because I thought I knew a lot of things that I absolutely did not know anything about. Yes, and it's not uncommon. I mean, how can we know? I mean, we're conditioned. I mean, I mean that's, that's not horrible. That's just a fact. 
you know, uh, it, and so what we do next is so important, you know, because of the, the times we're living in are the result of seeds that were planted in the past. What we're going to be seeing is what seeds are planted now. They're, they're going to bloom. So the consciousness and especially the collective consciousness we bring to this chronic fatigue of race and racism that's in our society, this kind of crippling, um, uh, you know, uh, coagulated, uh, you know, we need to bring an anticoagulant uh, practice to the uh, ways that the heart and mind is clogged around this issue. And I think the only way I know that helps that is the very ways you're talking about it, which is you invest in knowing so that, you know, it's like when you know better, you do better. You invest in the knowing. You, again, you, you set that intention and you stay in the inquiry and you know it's gonna be messy. I mean, it's not, you know, it can't be any other way. And um, I think if we enter the conversation thinking, you know, we shouldn't be touched by it, uh, it's, it's another form of delusion. So of course we're gonna get our hearts broken. Of course we're gonna be caught in a snag of ignorance and innocence. Of course, we're, you know, I tell people to, to get, that they get 10 get out of jail free cards a day because we're gonna blow it. And on one side of the card, you write, oh, this is how I put my foot in my mouth. And on the other side of the card, this is what I learned from it. Because it's a, it's a practice. This is not a perfection, it's a practice. And like you started with, and, and I say, I've said many times, it's hard work and it's heart work. Our heart is intimately involved in, in being in this conversation and, and, and our, our desire, our deep desire for to be well. And when we touch into our need, you know, that, that a part of our conditioning is protecting our heart. You know, a lot of the ways we hide and take the exit routes is because it's, it's so tender. We're really being touched and we're afraid. Uh, and to care for that fear allows us to, to float on our backs in the river a little bit for a while, while we just regroup and know that we're, we're still here. We're still, um, we're still part of it. We're still in it. No, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And, and, you know, it makes me think of, you know, we're homo sapiens, we're mammals, right? We're so, we're the ones who are aware that they're aware. The one who knows they know. The knowing itself, if you will, the absolute mm -hmm you know, sort of perspective, but also the one who knows, they know. So this quality of this knowing, you know, quality, this knowingness, you know, this, this verbing, I say, not the nouning of our interrelatability um, across beingness, across culture, across race, across class, if you will, or socioeconomic, you know, whatever, um, whatever quote unquote others or differences or whatever, that we can be distinct Mm -hmm. and unique and have the same innate Buddha nature, if you will, or, you know. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, and again, that's individual and collective. You know, we're all, you know, mammals um, uh, and we're all humans with this capacity to know and reflect on our lives. And, um, you know, we're all distinct in the, in the sense of our, the way we've been shaped by life. We have, we have a certain shape to us uh, that uh, 
that that we're in and a, a certain way that our view has been shaped. And these are things we can recognize, this kind of patterning or habituation in our distinctness. We can recognize the collective constellation of our membership, uh, right? Beautiful, yeah. And, and you know, it, it's making me think of, you know, this mammal thing. We need, um, you know, especially humans, we can, we need other people to take care of us when we're little, you know, we're not like turtles and such, you know, I mean, we were, but we're not anymore, you know? Right. And, um, and so one of the things that's come up, I think, in some of the work that I've done is recognizing, you know, being with other people is a human drive, just like thirst and hunger. Um, it, it, you die of loneliness, you know, you don't die of, um, some people will beg to differ, but lack of sex. Um, but it's true, you don't. <laughs> um, but that this uh, idea of separation versus this idea of belonging is really kind of fundamental to the well-being of anyone. And some folks, uh, who was it, Mother Teresa, who said, you know, don't make your family so small, I'm paraphrasing, you know, uh, cast mm -hmm. your net more widely in terms of your, your heart, you know, the, the, who you hold in it in terms of your, your family. But we do have these sort of tribes that we kind of chunk down ourselves into, which oftentimes, especially the way our culture proscribes it, can be just our little nuclear family in our little suburban development with our own individual pool and our own car. And we forget that we came from this ancestry, this human ancestry, this lineage of being in community, of you know, tribes of 150 interrelated, codependent, in a good way, people who always were interacting and, and meeting one another. And so I feel like we're sort of talking about things that benefit folks who have white skin privilege, right? Or white identified folks that they may not recognize the benefit. Cause I've heard from a lot of folks like, well, why should I care? Well, things are pretty good. Well, I'm right. okay. Um, I didn't do anything. Right. And, right. and yet there's this sort of existential angst that often emerges that is this sort of nugget of separation that I think gnaws away at the heartstrings of a lot of folks. And that this might in fact be the antidote to that without, you know, buying something that a drug, big pharma drug company, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying, you know, um, that, that isn't proscribed in that way. Yeah. I think you're saying a lot in what you're saying. Um, and um, I do think that a lot of our social conditioning is, is strongly around an individualist kind of lens. That is dominant culture-driven mindset uh, in this country. And, and I think that, it, that that's a big part of our conditioning, being at the individual level and not recognizing uh, membership and our relationship to something larger than our own comfort. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a surprise. I mean, I think, uh, when you, when you think about it, uh, we're all wanting ourselves to be safe and, and to be happy. And this is a meta prayer, right? Uh, we want our family to not be in harm or endangered. And, you know, so our circles can be small, 
uh, because it's so, so it's such a part of our conditioning. We're not uh, in the habit of thinking about the whole world all the time, you know, uh, but that's the invitation and not so much the invitation, but when you're in this practice, you tap into that deeper knowing of your membership. And it can be very frightening to, to tap in and feel a very tiny piercing into something vast uh, that you also recognize as yourself, if you, so to speak. So I, I just think it has to do with, uh, again, um, whether we are intending to take this on as a topic. And, and quite frankly, I've met enough people who are not interested in that intention. Uh, but if you are, and if you set that intention, you can always kind of come back to that and say, okay, so what's really important here? It's not like we stay in the river forever. Sometimes we have to get out and, you know, dry out because our skin starts, you know, what happens when you're in water too much, you, you have to get out and thaw out and then get back in again. But I, I think the intention is much, the, the intention of heart is what's so important here. And I think we have a growing critical mass in society right now that's interested and taking deep dives into this area, all races. Uh, people of color are also looking at how they dive into this, uh, you know, um, and stay in it and stay fresh in it and, and not um, as burdened. And again, what makes the difference is that we have these two structures of mindfulness and the racial affinity group that fortifies us and, and becomes places of refuge where we can rest and know and uh, recommit uh, and, and be recognized through the lives of others that we're with of, of um, who we are and how we are on this journey, both as ultimate uh, and relative uh, beings. Great. Um, a couple more things I wanna to just address before we um, kind of start to wind down. A couple, um, one I would like for you to sort of maybe walk us through a little bit of what a racial affinity group meeting might look like, because I know you talked about that in a sort of general way, but, you know, mm -hmm. what does it really look like? And then also, if you could give us an example, um, perhaps, of what it means to use your privilege in a way that's effective. Um, I, an example I have comes to mind, um, which is very uh, simple, about a woman who was uh, white, who was um, uh, a sister-in-law of a woman who was uh, black. I don't even know if this was from Joy Degree's book, Post-Traumatic slave syndrome or not mm -hmm. but they were in line at a checkout store or something and you know um the white woman went through and then uh with her grocery items and then um the woman who was black was asked to provide id and uh you know mm -hmm. double check when she went to write her check and the woman who was um white said why you know you you don't need to do that you just did that with me you didn't do that with me so why are you doing that now you know where and so she was using her privilege to check with the woman who was doing the grocery store um you know checking and and that was just like a point right a very small point a very localized point but it was just it was one thing that kind of stuck out as a nugget in my mind so those two things an example of a racial affinity group or perhaps mm -hmm. a way mm -hmm. that somebody might that that white using your privilege to good might show up on a regular basis. But two other things I want to talk about. One is um, you talk about anger 
with people of color, right? People, I know when I had once said to someone, um, gee, it would be nice, who is a, a white Dharma teacher at a retreat, oh, it'd be nice if there were more POC in the room. And the first response I got without hesitation was, you're angry. And I was like, whoa, okay, not really, but <laughs> that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then the second point is um, joy. You kind of go to the end of the book, you start talking about the importance of cultivating joy and the importance of, um, you know, recognizing what's good and the beauty that's there and not just being mired in um, reality, which can be painful. <laughs> yeah. So let me just try to um, address these four points you just raised, uh, which I think there's some overlap to them that we can talk about. And maybe a good place to start is looking at examples of um, the use of privilege. Um, but let me, before I say that, let me say this, that in my book, I'm talking about three ways to look at race and racial conditioning. One is through the individual lens, which we talked about a bit. One uh, is looking at the um, coming through the lens of our racial group identity. And this is understanding ourselves as members in racial group identity and that there's a collective experience there that we share and that is also projected on us. And then the third is the institutional level, um, which whatever the dominant racial group is in the institution, what they carry with them is their racial conditioning. And because the racial group identity of whiteness hasn't been investigated, then the unconsciousness of whiteness is carried into the institution and then proliferated. So when we look at a good use of privilege, we have to look at from which of those three lenses we're looking through. Because if we're always working at all three of those levels all the time, we're gonna get burned out pretty quick. So I think we can decide uh, where we put our energy. So the example you gave of the check stand going through, for example, that's an, that's an intervention at the individual level. That's an individual white woman calling um, a, a racial dynamic, real time, right on the spot, here it is, you know, and very gentle. You know, why are you, why are you doing that? You didn't do that with me. That's an individual intervention. So we can choose, and there, there are multiple examples of intervening at the individual level, because stuff is coming up all the time. So, and then there's interventions at the, at, and the use of privilege at the racial group identity. This is where we uh, get into our racial affinity groups and talk about where we might want to intervene. Um, and um, this could be also me speaking of the general voice of people of color, you know, or um, what I'm seeing is a dynamic of constellation here. It's, it's a difference between, um, all lives matter and black lives matter is, is kind of understanding racial group identity and, and intervening there at the group level. And then there's the institutional level where you are really a part of causes and you're confronting policies, structures, norms of inequity and injustice, and you're membered in those efforts to bring about a change. So when we wanna look at how we use our privilege for example, we could look at if I'm in a leadership role, and I often am in a seat of a Dharma teacher or I'm in the seat of, of author 
or I'm, you know, a keynote speaker, or I'm a grandmother, you know, all these things have me in a seat of, of um, privilege. I, I can be mindful of how I use that role to make a difference for the collective. One example I like to talk about is my mother who was raised, who was very active in the Urban League, uh, you know, had white skin, you know, privilege, not white skin privilege, but light skin privilege. She was a light skinned African-American woman in South Central Los Angeles, where we grew up. And she got all this access because she was light skinned. But what she did, which was an Urban League strategy, uh, was to get into these institutions and then start to make a difference there by pointing things out, by inviting a different view, by you know, whatever she did. And it opened all kind of doors or planted all kind of seeds. And that was a use of her individual privilege at the institutional level because she was intervening, but it was intentional. So I think we have to be intentional about which lens we want to respond to so that we are really focusing our energy and not overwhelming ourselves and to be real clear what seat we're in when we're doing it. Like she was clearly in the seat of a black woman making this intervention uh, and recognizing her privilege. So we could do that. You know, there are times at the individual level where I tell people, you, you have to think about whether you bid or pass because you can't bid all the time on all of the issues. So I'm suggesting when we're looking at our use of privilege and we all have some form of privilege because it's a privilege just to speak your voice depending on what the situation is that you're in. But to be clear and intentional about whether you're bidding or passing and which seat you're sitting in. Uh, uh, being in a racial affinity group is about, uh, let me say a little bit about the structure of that because I think it would help. And there's a, a link on my website on racial affinity group guidelines. But it really is, um, uh, simple but not so easy being in these groups because you know all of our stuff comes up so the idea is to have a safe place to engage the complexity and and uh, and uh, the all the tentacles of this discussion so you make a commitment for one year you meet once a month for about two and a half hours it's no more than five people and can be as small as two maybe three is you know it could be great you're, you're inviting people who want to commit to this investigation over a pe period of time, and you're inviting people that are as close to your racial composition as you can get. So for you, it might be with a biracial group, right? Uh, for me, it might be with an African-American uh, elder group or something, you know. Uh, I think everybody should be in a racial affinity group, regardless of their race, because it's a place to uh, build um, um, a, a, a new agreement in our relative reality around this topic and to decolonize our minds. Um, so, so you meet once a month for three hours. There's a period of um, sitting in it where, there's, where you get still. So there's a guided meditation that I recommend. And then there's, there's uh, about 35 questions that I offer that people can investigate one at a time or take two at a time. And um, people go around and just share their response to the questions. These questions are directed 
at our internal conditioning around race because we're looking at how we uproot our habituation, our habits of mind. Uh, and, and, and so that there's some sharing. I'm not in, suggesting that we're doing a lot of cross-talking initially, but just deep listening and seeing how we're impacted by it. Um, the presumption is that, there, that people are practicing in a mindfulness practice so that there's some continuity of stillness and being able to uh, support uh, what we, what's arising and coming up for us. And that there's a checkout period at the end where we talk about what it was like. And so a lot of good instruction, uh, a lot of uh, instruction on uh, guidelines for how you engage with each other so that it's safe. Uh, that we park our judgment, that we are more curious and critical, um, that we bring our heart uh, to it, and that we stay, that so much is, is really based around people committing for that period of time, because if they don't, there's an exit route, and it really starts to deteriorate uh, uh, what the, the, the power of the group collective. So that's the racial affinity group structure, and there's a lot more to say about it on that. Beautiful, yeah, that's on the website, I love that. And then what about the piece about, you know, sort of um, people of color being accused of being angry when they try and sort of say a few things that other folks may not wanna hear or aren't ready to hear or feel, I don't know, somehow offended by? Yes, so, um, I think we can expect that to happen as people of color uh, because we don't get to control people's uh, way of um, responding to us. It's not in our control. Um, so when we find ourselves triggered by that, to me, it just suggests, you know, uh, there's uh, some ways I might need to know how to self-care in moments like that because we can't control the ignorance that's in the world. So I think one way I manage that is that I, I actually am, am expect the ignorance to be there. I'm not walking as if, because if, if, if I find myself constantly triggered, then underneath that is a belief that it shouldn't have been there or, um, you know, there's something working around the belief. And that belief can sometimes be, I know racism exists, but I don't expect it to happen to me. I don't expect it to come my way, but it is. It, it, I mean, it just most definitely is. So when we're shocked by it or surprised by it or thrown off our rock around it, I don't suggest that we expect the person we're interacting with to take care of it in that moment. So, you know, our liberation can't be based on whether white people get this or not. It has to be based on something a lot deeper that we have a bit more control over. And that, to me, is what we're doing with our own practice and understanding that, you know, ignorance is in the world. I'm walking in this world. I'm not hiding out. You know, this is not, um, you know, I'm not going to believe that I'm angry. I'm going to sit here in my seat. And if, if that's how they see it, then that's how it is. Another piece of it has to do with where we intervene again. You know, more and more as an elder, maybe it's because I'm an elder or I don't know what it is, but I'm less, I, I feel like I'm less interested in exerting my energy in places where it's not going to have impact. Mm 
or I'm, I've, I've, I want to make sure when I give all of that up, I've got the right audience that can do something with it. It's not just an ejaculation of energy and anger. I'm much more uh, wanting more tantrically to use my energy uh, to, to compost the experience I'm having and then choose if this is a place where that gets to be shared. So it's, it's about whether we're acting from a place of reactivity, because in those moments when, when we get slammed with, oh, angry black woman or whatever, I've certainly got that a lot. I'm hurt in those moments, but I'm not as hurt as I used to be because I understand what that's about. And I'm not um, hurt because uh, my, my, who I am is not invested on how I'm looking. So, or, or how I'm being perceived. So perception is, a, is something I talk a lot about in the book, misperception and how this gets tied around racial uh, injustice. Uh, but at the individual level, we can't control the craziness that comes at us, but we can decide how we're gonna roll with that. Um, and sometimes we call it out and we have to leave it there for them to deal with without hoping there's gonna be a certain uh, response because it's often an inadequate response and that's a part of it you know well that whole thing of not attaching to outcome but yet still staying curious and open-hearted but then having the circle of compassion include yourself and then you know the yeah. self-care that goes along with that and you know in AA or 12-step programs they say take what you want leave the rest meaning yeah you bid or pass sometimes you pass you that's know that's right and I also think when we have a place to come back to like the racial affinity groups where we can compost that, where we can really work with that uh, in a wise way, in a mindful way, with supporting people who are also walking the path. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference when we're in these racial affinity groups and our energy is not externalized, but we're really dealing with the core hurt and pain uh, and how we deal with that in those circles so that we can then be with what's happening in the world in, in wiser and wiser ways. Yeah, beautiful. And then just to kind of um, wrap up, you know, um, just two last points, the point about joy and about, you know, sort of when some of this, um, you know, there's just always going to be uh, changes, right? The nothing is, is permanent and, and, you know, the, what is it, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Is that Dr. King's mm -hmm. quote? You know? So we're hoping that we're in this spiral where we're spiraling out toward uh, greater well-being for, for all. Um, and, and joy is a big part of that, because I think, like you say, you know, if you stay in the river, you get kind of, um, you know, pruny, and you want to, you know, jump out sometimes and dry out a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and joy seems to be a way to, to kind of do that. Can, can you talk a moment about ways in which folks who may feel as though they need to abandon joy in order to do the work of um, being on the front lines of this, um, how maybe that can help actually sustain folks? Yeah, um, it's a really good, uh, it's an important lubricant. It's like an anticoagulant in this kind of healing process. Uh, and a piece, you know, one of the ways that I like to talk about joy is that when we're in this, it reminds me of a story when I was with Angelus Arian when I was writing my first book. 
and um, and I was I was very anxious. This book was about rage, and I was on fire when I was writing it, and you know, and I was in the mindfulness practice, and she was this um, wise woman that I really had a lot of respect for. I went and had tea with her, and I said, ah, this is just really hard writing writing this and blah, blah, blah. And she says, well, when's the last time you were in your garden? Or have you, when's the last time you danced? And, uh, and she just had a, a few things she was asking me and it was like, oh my gosh, I haven't been doing anything but working hard. And she said to me, she said, you gotta bring a sense of uh, delight into the complexity of these big things that you know you're going to be taking taking on and when i thought about that i thought about my mother uh growing up again in south central los angeles and um you know we were raised in the church and my mother played the piano in the church we all sang in the choir but she we also had on friday nights once a month jazz improvisational uh jam sessions at our house and one of the chapters in the book that I talk about is artistry as cultural medicine, as a way to be joyfully offering up our expression uh, and serving it, just, just serving it to the community through our unique expression. So one of the pieces of joy uh, and how we bring it to our necessary work of uh, healing and activism around race and racism is that we really entertain what is our artistic expression that tickles us, you know, that uh, brings a certain lightness. I like to dance, so it's, and music is so important to me. I use it in my work, you know, there's not, there's dancing and music in my Mindful of Race training. <laughs> and I think that it just gives us a certain freedom that's immediate, and um, the expression that we are offering up from it is something we probably can't recreate, because it's only in the moment. And I think we need to just entertain what, our, what that is for us, what brings us a sense of delight um, that really softens our heart and uh, makes us smile. Maybe it's, you know, sometimes when I look at my grandchildren, you know, I got a great grandbaby coming in November. Just the thought of that brings certain joy uh, into, into my heart. We need to bring that into the mix for, a, 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 again, an anticoagulant who um, are healing around this. Beautiful, yeah. I mean, it balances out the, um, the, the other, you know, practices. And, 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 and it's really a practice of equanimity in a way. Yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. Appreciative joy, mudita, sympathetic joy, you know, in addition to that and, and shared joy with others and really giving us an opportunity to um, celebrate one another's successes and not always be so competitive, perhaps, even with other yes. people who are on yes. the front lines. Also, yes. good work that, um, you know, maybe we have little seeds of, you know, envy. <laughs> so. there's, a, there's definitely that. And you know there is, and we know there is. and um, you know, in time, I think that that softens a little bit, especially through our mindfulness practice, because we, we have a place to kind of investigate those waves of envy and, you know, resentment that comes up. Uh, and, and this happens, uh, you know, this comes up in our racial affinity groups where we get a chance to really see, oh, you know, the grind of that and the, 
and how uncomfortable that is to experience on the inside. It looks like it's, it's out there, but it really is an experience we're having in here. And I think over time that softens. Um, but again, we, we, all of this is about a practice. We, our life as ceremony, we're in ceremony. All of what we're doing is, uh, is ceremony and practice. And what gets better and better is the intention we put in it, the heart we bring to it, and again, our understanding of our interdependence, that non-harming is a non-negotiable, and that compassion is so uh, necessary for us to uh, move breath by breath, step by step. Beautiful, Ruth. The book is Mindful of Race, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out. The website is ruthking.net. I'll post it as well. And I just want to really express my deep gratitude and vows to all the work that you've done and continue to do and just the light that you are in the world and really the heart of love and compassion that you share with us. And um, just so grateful that you were able to join us on Wise Girl today, Ruth. Thank you so much. Thank you. It takes one to know one. <laughs> wow. That's, that's better than an Oscar. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been so joyful. I appreciate it. I am delighted. Okay, great. Your word. Take good care. Okay. Be 